keeping on our series called Worthy. This is the worthiness of God. We're looking at the worthiness of God in the book of Psalms and what does the Bible have to say about the nature of God and what difference does it really make in our lives? And we've been talking about the purpose of worship. We looked at the holiness of God. And today we want to look at another grand aspect of the nature of God and that is the sovereignty of God. And God's sovereignty is basically the idea that God is his absolute rule and control over all his creation. That's the sovereignty of God. That God rules over the affairs of men. That God sits on the throne over the universe as Lord. That everything that comes about is because either he directly causes it or consciously allows it. And so these, this is the sovereignty of God. Now, we know by nature... We don't like people ruling over us. And this is the typical eye roll that parents, the bane of parents, and no parent actually stands like this. So that's actually, you know, this is a, 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 a model or whatever, and she's like this. But, you know, parents and kids are like, oh, you know. Um, but basically, anyone who has a teen or is a teen, we know what that's like. You know, we just don't like people telling us what to do. We don't like people having control over our lives. We want to be free. We want to be independent. We want to be able to do whatever we want to do, whenever we want to do it. And you know, in terms of God, it's the same type of way. You know, we don't mind God coming when we need him, but until we need him, we say, well, I kind of still want my own way. I want my freedom. And you know, Satan is very aware of this propensity of the human heart. And we know that when he tempted Adam and Eve in the garden, Satan said, God knows that on the day that you eat this fruit, the fruit that God said, don't eat, uh, Satan says, yeah, but you know, if you eat this fruit, you will be like God. Meaning you can do whatever you want, you can be free. And of course, Adam and Eve took the bait and they realized that their rejection of God's sovereignty and his rule Instead of bringing about freedom and joy, it brought about a, a, a spiritual slavery. It brought about shame and, and, and suffering immediately. And so once we understand, as we think about the sovereignty of God, when we begin to truly embrace his authority, his loving control over our lives, we will find that we will experience a true freedom, a new life of abundance, a confidence that only the sovereignty of God can bring. So I'd like you to turn with me to Psalm chapter 135, Psalm chapter 135, and let's stand in reverence for the word of God. <clears throat> Psalm 135 says, Praise the name of the Lord. Give praise, O servants of the Lord, who stand in the house of the Lord, in the courts of the house of our God. Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sing to his name, for it is pleasant. For the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel, as his own possession. For I know that the Lord is great, and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deep. He, he it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain, and brings forth the wind from his storehouses. And we skip down to verse 15. The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak. They have eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear. They are, there is, nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them become like them, and so do all who trust in them. 
O house of Israel, bless the Lord. O house of Aaron, bless the Lord. O house of Levi, bless the Lord. You who fear the Lord, bless the Lord. Blessed be the Lord from Zion, who dwells in Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Wow, these are just powerful words about the praise of God. And as we look at this passage, we're going to see that there is, and when we think about the sovereignty of God, we're going to see that there is no better life than the one in which God does as he pleases. When we understand the rule and authority of God, we will find comfort and courage in every circumstance of life. That the control of God is the most freeing thing that we could ever experience. And that's really what this passage is about. Psalm 135 follows what is called a, a, a chiastic structure. This is a poetic structure used in ancient Israel, meaning that the main idea of this psalm is found in the middle of the psalm, and it has a parallel structure kind of moving out towards the outsides. So basically what you have is in the opening verse, there is the praise of God. He speaks of the praise of God. And then in the closing verses, it speaks of the praise of God. Then in this next section, there speaks in 5 through 7, it speaks about the power of God. And then in 15 through 18, it speaks about the powerlessness of idols. So again, there's this, this parallelism moving towards the middle. And finally, you get into the middle section, which is the main idea of this entire psalm. And what the, the main idea from 8 through 14 speaks of the redemptive acts of God. So it's speaking about the redemption of God. And these ideas are all related to the sovereignty of God, that God is in control over all creation and all history. And so the first thing we look at is what is God's sovereignty? Well, verse 1 begins, praise the name of the Lord. Give praise, O servants of the Lord. And then when you go to verse 5, there's a very concise statement that's, that captures this idea of the sovereignty of God. It says, for I know, there's a psalmist saying, I know that the Lord is great and that our God is above all gods. And then here's the sovereignty of God. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and earth, in the seas and all the deep. Verse 5 begins with saying, for I know. Now this is not just, okay, I know. This is a public confession of faith. This is a declaration saying, I affirm and believe and proclaim this truth about God, that God is sovereign, that whatever he wants, he does whatever he wants in heaven and earth, that God, I proclaim to the earth, to everyone, that God is in control, that there's nothing outside of his control. And then in verse five, it says, for the Lord, our Lord, is above all other gods. Now, remember in the context of when this was written, uh, the pagans, there's a lot of pagan idolatry. And for the, the, the nature of pagan idolatry was that they would try to exert their will on their gods. Because their gods, you know, if you look at Greek mythology, Roman mythology, their gods are kind of very human. You know, they're very, they have weaknesses, they need food, they need 
stuff. And so you would kind of, um, as, a, as a, a worshiper of these pagan gods, you would offer your offerings to them, say, oh, if I give these things to you, uh, if I cut myself and show my devotion, even if they offer their children to be burned on the altar, they would do these things to say, we're trying to coerce or to, uh, uh, to obligate our gods to do our will, to do the things that we want, to give us that prosperity, to bring the rain when we need it. And, and the Bible says very clearly, but the God of the Bible does not bend to our will. That the God of the Bible is different than all the other pagan gods, for God does as he pleases. And this is really important. He is not obligated to be good to us or to save us, no matter what we do. God, we say, well, God, you owe me. No, he doesn't. We say, well, God, since I did these things for you, you should do these things uh, for me. No, he doesn't have to. We say, well, God, I'm a lot better than all these other people, so you should save me and be gracious to me. Uh, no, he doesn't have to. If God judges all of creation, you know, we may say, well, God, you can't do that. Yes, he can. If God chose to bring suffering into our lives, we say, well, God, you can't do that. That's not, that's not fair. Yes, he can. God can do that. If God doesn't do all the things that we want him to do and we say, God, um, that's not right. And God says, no, this is right because I am God and I am sovereign and I rule. See, it's hard for us because we live in a very privileged society, right? Especially right now, especially here in the Silicon Valley, the new kind of modern paganism, if you want to say, is this, we think really highly of our opinions. You know, it's kind of like, if I don't like the school, if I don't like the way my teacher is treating my child, the school's treating my child, I'm going to go tell them, and they better change it. I mean, they better go talk. You didn't talk to the teacher? The teacher still, oh, I'm going to go talk. I'll, I'll talk to the principal. Oh, you don't talk to the principal? Is I going to do anything? Okay, I'm going to talk to the supervisor because this is not the way my child should be treated. If we don't like the food in the restaurant, we say, oh, take it back. I want another one. If, if we buy something in a shop and it doesn't work the way we want to, we say, well, I'll send it back. I'm going to talk to your manager uh, because I don't like this. See, basically, we are at the center of our own universe. We think everyone else should bow to our will and do the things that we say, you know, is, is right, is our right. Now, suppose someone came into your home and said, some stranger came into your home and said, ah, I hate your furniture. And man, the, the, the pictures on your wall, they're really ugly. Mm, and they walk into your bedroom and they say, oh, the way you organize your bedroom, your bed should be over this way and your cabinet should be over there. And, and the way you, you, your couch, oh man, that couch, just get rid of that couch, get a new one. And we'd be looking at that person, they'd be looking, oh, I'm going to look at your dishes and everything. And we'd be saying, hey, what are you doing? And, you know, and they'd, say, they'd say, well, would you let this person change your house? They'd say, no, this is my house. I paid for this house. It's mine. If I, want, if I like my couch, it's my comfortable couch, it stays there. Nobody tells me, get rid of my couch. When you start buying the furniture, when you start paying the bills for this house, maybe you can have a say for how everything is decorated. But as long as I'm paying for this house, and I bought this house, and I bought this furniture, 
Your viewpoint means very little to me. God says to us, when you start making the universe, when you create the planets, when you cause the clouds to rise at the end of the earth, when you make the lightning and the rain come forth and the wind from your star houses, then you can dictate or have an opinion about how God ought to run the universe. But until then, everything belongs to God. And God does whatever he chooses. Job 23.13 says, What God's soul desires, he does. Psalm 115 says, Our God is in the heavens, and he does whatever he pleases. Romans 11.36 says, For, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. This is the sovereignty of God. That we have to establish that God does not owe us anything. That anything that good that has happened to us, it is not because I have done this or I deserve this or I coerced God into giving this to me. It is simply because God chose to do so. In his grace and in his mercy. And this idea of sovereignty creates the proper context for what the psalmist says next. Starting in verse 8, it says that um, the psalmist starts to talk now about what God chooses or what God chose to do with his sovereignty. The fact that God can do anything he wants, and now this is what he chooses to do. In verses 8 through 14, which is the heart of the psalm, we said this is the center of the psalm, the psalmist recounts the acts of God in Israel's history, all that they've experienced, uh, all the redemptive acts that they've experienced as a people. And he says to them, this is not by luck, this is not by chance, this is not by fate, this is not because you are a righteous or ingenious nation or a powerful nation. He says, your history is the story of the grace of God and the love of God. See, that's what the psalmist is saying to each one of us. He's saying, your story, that, that my story, any advantage that we have, the fact that we're here and, and that we have the things that we have, that we have our family, that we have the finances, that we have the things that we enjoy, if, if we're better than, if we look at ourselves and we say, you know, I have all these things, if we look at other people and say, well, I'm glad I'm in better shape than they are, this is not because of us, it's because of the grace of God and God's love. And in Psalms, in this psalm, there's three kind of highlights of what a God has done in the history of Israel. First, it talks about his redemption, that God freed his people out of slavery and made them a great nation. In verse 8, it says, he it was who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, both man and a beast, who in your midst, O Egypt, sent signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants. So here, this of course refers to the exodus of Egypt. The psalmist is saying um, to, the Egypt, to the Israelites, and these could be Israelites living in their land, you know, way removed from, from, you know, from the history of the exodus. I mean, exodus, we say, well, that's my great-great-great-grandfather's story. But he's saying the fact that you now have freedom, the fact that you now can work on, he says, you, you complain about the hard work on your land, the fact that you have land, 
and you can complain about the hard work of the land. The fact that you have children that you complain about that they're misbehaving, uh, just know that this is a freedom given to you by God. That without God's grace, you would be slaves. You would have had no choice about your job. You would have had no land. You would have, your, the, the Pharaoh could say, kill all the, the baby boys and it would be done and you would have no say. But God in his grace and his mighty power displayed so many signs and wonders to redeem you out of bondage and he gave you this promised land and, and so he says we have this freedom in Christ through his redemption. That's, that's what God chose to do with his power. The second thing that he chose is adoption, that he adopted Israel. It says, for the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel, as his possession. The idea here of chosen is an expression of the will. It's like free will. You could choose to do this. You, could cho you don't say the Lord was forced to do this. When you choose, it's like, I could do this. I could do that. He says, the Lord, what did he choose? He could have chosen Babylon. He could have chosen Amnon. He could have chosen Moab. He could have chosen the Edomites. But instead, he chose Israel, a small, unimpressive, sinful people to be his possession. Did God know that he, they were going to be disobedient and rebellious? Yeah, he knew. Did God know that they would continue to break his heart over and over again? Yes, he did know. Did he know all the things that they would do in, in disobedience to him? Yes, he did, but yet he still chose them to be his own. Uh, I remember watching 60 Minutes. There used to be news programs. Now they don't have news programs hardly at all. 60 Minutes is now on like Sunday you know, afternoon when everybody's watching football. But anyway, <laughs> they would show these like articles um, of different things going on around the world. And one of, this, one of the pieces was... Um, this is quite a while back, was the child slavery that was going on in the Dominican Republic. That, that in the Dominican, they were going to Haiti and they were buying children and bringing them to the Dominican to work because Haiti was much poorer than they were, so they knew that they could actually buy, the, the families were so desperate, they could buy these children and put them to work in the fields. And so they would show these children, and they're, and they're in their teens now, um, and they're living in like these plantations, these giant plantations, and the living quarters literally, and they showed the living quarters, it was like a three foot by six foot um, kind of four wall and roof made with corrugated um, aluminum, and that's where they lived. And you would look inside and there's just a little blanket there, and there's a little cup with the water and a little bit of food. And that's where they lived for their entire lives. I mean, these were kids now who were like in their teens and they, they, were, they were bought as slaves when they were like, you know, 10 years old, eight years old. And so they've been living already for, you know, at least like, you know, five, six, seven years in this, in this little thing by themselves. And they would live there until they died. Because why? Because they were slaves because they were purchased and, 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 the, owner, and the, the, the owner of the plantation owned them. And I looked at that and you know, they worked all day, no school, no family, no money. They don't get paid for what they do. They get food. 
And they just did that for their entire life. And I, I thought about it and I thought, man, what if I was born in Haiti and my parents, because of they were starving, sold me as a slave to the Dominican? Would I say, oh yeah, I'm different though. I'm going to make it. I can get out of this. I, I, I'm going to work hard and I'm going to be the best worker and I can get out of this someday or I'm going to get my education and, and I'm going to move out of this place and I'm going to make a... No. No. It doesn't matter who you are, what you are. If you're born in this place, which you have no chance of and no reason, uh, no say, you would have nothing. You could do nothing. You would spend the rest of your life living in a three by six tin shack until you died. There's nothing. And I, that really sobered me up as I, as I saw this piece. And, and we think about when we look at our houses, when we look at our phone, when we look at our TVs, when we look at our school, when we think about our future and the things that we look forward to and we say, oh, this is because of me. No, it is not because of me. It is not because of us. It is because God's sovereign grace chose for us to be born in a place where our parents didn't have to sell us as slaves. That's the only reason why we are not spending the rest of our lives like these slaves in the Dominican. And, and, and that, that's the one thing as we, we sit and, and we think about these things, you know, we think about what God has done when he saved us, when he adopted us as his children, what this really means to every one of us as we think about the things that we have, as we think about the future that we have ahead of us. And this leads to the last thing mentioned in the psalm, that God promises a future. He says, your name, O Lord, endures forever. Your renown, O Lord, through all the ages. And then he says, for the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. And notice the word here is the Lord will, not has vindicated, but he will vindicate your people, meaning when you go through times when other nations still treat you unjustly, when you go through times when you will go through suffering and, and, and difficulty and, and struggles, it says the Lord will vindicate his people. He will have compassion on them that no matter what you go through, God is going to free you. He's going to, 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 to love you. There's nothing that will touch our lives in the future that God will not allow. There's no trial too great, no temptation that is too great to handle. And that's what scripture says. There's no tragedy that does not have a purpose in God's plan. There's nothing that's wasted. God doesn't say, oh boy, I wasted time on that one. No, God, everything he does is very intentional. Nothing is outside of his control. Nothing takes him by surprise. That's the promise of God. That's the confidence that we have as in, in, uh, under God's sovereign care, that he guides every step, that he controls every circumstance, that he planned, he has a plan to prosper us even in the light of, of all the suffering and struggle that we have. And this is a reason why we, we praise him. 
Oh, we love him because he's redeemed us. He's, he's made us his child. He gives us a future. And if, if you're here today and, and you don't know what God offers you through salvation, it's, it's more than just saying, well, becoming a Christian means coming to church and doing that. No. Uh, when, when, when you become a Christian, you come to realize that God saved us. We come and we just thank God. Even if we're not a Christian, that doesn't mean God doesn't care about you. He doesn't do good things for you. God has already done where you are today is because how much God loves you. It doesn't matter whether you're Christian or not. Becoming a Christian says, God, I recognize that you've done this for me. And I thank you that you've done this for me. And I believe that Jesus, I, I want to receive your son Jesus uh, as my savior. And I want to follow you. I want to believe and know that he has risen from the dead. And I want to give my life to you by faith. That these, this is the response of a people who know uh, the graciousness and goodness of God, regardless of our past, regardless of who we are. And so finally, we look at the response. How do we respond to this idea that God is sovereign? How do we live in light of the sovereignty of God? Because some people say, well, I mean, if God's going to take care of everything, then I don't got to do anything. I mean, if God's already got in control, what does he need me for? If God already made the decision for me, then I, I do whatever I want, and God's going to work it out. No, but under God's sovereignty, there is a sense here in which God, the psalmist says, here are some of the things that we must do in light of the sovereignty of God. In verses 15 through 18, uh, it says, and the idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak. They have eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them become like them, and so do all who trust in them. Let's talk about idols. I remember when Matthew, my son, was a toddler, and uh, we'd bring him to the local school to play on the playground. And he was playing with this little girl, and he asked her, he said, do you believe in rocks? And the little girl said, yes. And Matthew came running to me and said, Daddy, that little girl worships idols. <laughs> and she was pointing, she worships idols, you know? And I said, no, Matthew, you just asked her if she believes in rocks. And she does. She sees them. So, of course, she believes in them, you know. And then, of course, the mom later on, I talked to the mom. The mom was really, and the mom said, she said, you must be a Christian. <laughs> And she said, she's from Ghana. She's a Christian as well. And she said, you must be, you must be a pastor. And I said, why? She says, well, because most children don't talk about those things when they're that age, you know. <laughs> so it's nice. We got a chance to talk about that. But, but the psalmist, the psalmist here talks about saying, hey, you know, why would you want to worship idols when they can't speak, they can't hear, can't breathe? It's like saying, you know, the psalmist is saying to, to the Israelites, was well, the Israelites had problems worshiping idols. They did, you know. And is it okay? He says, on this side, we have the great sovereign God of the universe who rules heaven and earth, who created the heavens and the earth, who brings forth clouds and thunder, who saved you out of slavery uh, with 10 miracles, who parted the Red Sea. That's the God on this side. And here's the other side, the idols that are blind, deaf, mute, dumb, and lifeless. And it's up to you. It's totally up to you Whose hands would you like to entrust your future? Into whose hands would you like to entrust your future? Into whose hands are you going to trust for your salvation? Basically saying, who, you know, who do you want to worship? That's what he's asking them. Who do you want to worship? Who do you want to give your life to? And he asks the same to us as well. Money, success, popularity, those are dumb, deaf, uh, and lifeless. Honor, 
the honor of men, the recognition of men. Is that why we work? To say finally somebody will say, oh, he's, man, he, look at what he did or what she did. Do, do, do we live for a worldly lifestyle, the life of the rich and famous, have that car we want, have that house that we, we, we think we deserve? Do we, want, do we live for the ability to taste and experience everything that this world has to offer? Oh, I've got to make sure I go to this place, this place, this place, this place, this place, and all these places before I die. Do we want to have the respect? and Do we live for the respect and jealousy of all the people around us? Oh, I want people to look at me and say, I want to be like him. I want to be like her. Do we, uh, do we live for uh, people finally getting what they deserve? bad but sometimes we say man I can't you know the last thing before I leave this job I want to make sure that I see that person finally get what they deserve I mean yeah that's what I live for you know or do we want to say well I want to have everyone finally recognize how important I am or how smart I am or how deserving I am do we live for these things because these are all idols they're deaf they're dumb they don't speak they're lifeless they're blind Anything that drives your life that is not from God is an idol. And, and, and idols are not able to save. And the acquisition of them is empty. And they take up space that otherwise can be filled with the blessing of God. And so how do we respond to God's sovereignty? We get rid of every form of idolatry in our lives. If there are things in our lives right now that we are still yearning for and working for and searching for, and that's, we know it's, that's kind of an idol in our lives, we need to really surrender that to God and know that even if we get these things, it's going to be empty. It's going to mean nothing. And why did I spend so much time thinking and dreaming and, and, and working towards these things? The second issue is give yourself to humble and faithful prayer. When we think of the sovereignty of God, when we understand the sovereignty of God, we also understand the power of prayer because we're, we, we know what God can do and we know what we can't do. And we know we can't change people. We tried, right? can't change your spouse. We try. I mean, we talk to couples when I do premarital counseling or marital counseling, we always say, you know, you could do everything you want. You, could, you can't change. You can't change your spouse. Only God can. You can't change your child. You can set all the rules. You can set them in the right motion. You can give them the environment and the teaching and everything that they need to go in a certain direction, but you cannot change them if they choose another direction. You can force them, but their heart will continue to move in another direction. You have to pray for your child. But God can change them. God can do what we could never do. You can't change your parents. We pray, a lot of us are praying for our parents that they will receive Jesus as Savior. And we're like, you know, can't they see? We know, we've been praying. We can't change our parents. But we pray because God is a sovereign God. We don't get things just because we want them. I mean, sometimes we think that way or just because we've done everything we can to get them. There are certain things that can only come when we surrender our will to the sovereignty of God. And we just pray with, with the desperation 
and we stop fighting with God to get our way and we get out of his way and allow him to have his way. Let him be the one who changes the hearts of the people that we love so much, that does the things in our child. When we release them to college and we try to call, you know, do all these things, we can't. We release them and we say, I'm praying that God will have his way in our child. We think about our spouses and we say, you know, gosh, if only they would do this and this. And we say, no, I release them into the, the sovereignty of God, that God will speak to them and not make them the husband that I want or not make them the wife that I want, but make them the husband and the wife that God wants, that will, will, will literally reflect uh, the person of Jesus Christ. Pray. The third thing is we find comfort in circumstances. God's sovereignty gives us comfort in the midst of circumstances. And we know that sometimes we feel like victims of circumstance, right? Oh, we do. It's like one day everything's going well, we're on top of the world, everything's working out better, better than planned. And then the next day, your child decides that he's gonna have a bad day, and then you're gonna have a bad day, and everybody's gonna have a bad day. And you're like, oh, what happened? You know, one day everything is good, and the next day, one little child who's only only ways, you know, I can carry them, but they can make everything just so hard. Again, I love my kids. <laughs> <laughs> but we know that life is so hard. Sometimes it's just, you know, you're, you're driving and somebody cuts you off and suddenly you're just having a bad day. Somebody says something mean to you at work and I was having such a good day and it just took one person, one word to just ruin it. But when you have a sovereign God and believe that God is in control and that he loves you, it means that even the negative and the positive don't come by chance. That we can have comfort in these. If we had a flat tire, we're late to an appointment and it costs our, us the job that we could have gotten, then we say, well, but in God's sovereign plan he plans to give us something even better that's why he did that uh, that difficult person that ruined our day well that may have been part of God's plan to make us make a decision so that put us in the place where God wants us to be so that later on it prepares us to face something that God wants us to face in the future whatever it is the sovereignty of God helps us to rejoice in these times in these difficult times to find comfort because we know that God is at work I mean you ever you know try to bake a cake and you take all the ingredients and you know I you don't do this you don't take the ingredients of the cake lay it out on the table and eat them one by one that's crazy right it's like ooh nutmeg you know, put it in your mouth and, oh, oh three cups of flour oh I gotta eat three cups of flour and you know wash it down with four raw eggs oh man this is great you know it's like stuff ingredients sometimes taste terrible but if you mix them together and you bake them the way they're supposed to be baked, when they come out, you eat it and you go, man, this tastes amazing. I can't believe that this is what all these things that taste so terrible, mix them together, they taste so good. Well, why is that? Because you gotta cook it, you gotta make it. And brothers and sisters, as we think about this, God is at work in the kitchen, <laughs> right? In your life. And you may say, he may be taking these things and you look at this one thing and go, oh man, this is hard to swallow. This is so, oh, I can't stand this. But, but God is taking them. He's mixing around the good and the bad in your life. He's subjecting your life sometimes to fire, to great heat. 
And he brings you through that fire. He brings you out. And at the end of the day, at the end of the time, when God brings you through all these things, when God takes his time in doing the things that he wants to do, he can make in you, uh, uh, make you a beautiful creation. That's what he wants to do. You'll be more like Jesus than you ever dreamed that you ever could be. And you're so thankful that God took all those ingredients, that he didn't leave any of those ingredients out, even the bitter ones, because they were an important part of making you to the praise and glory of Jesus Christ. See, that's what Romans 8.28, when Romans 8.28 says that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose, that's exactly what that means. And so if you're going through a really tough time right now and it's a real big struggle and you're thinking, you know, uh, I don't know why God is doing this or I, I, I don't want to take this anymore, please be reminded of the sovereignty of God. That he's at work in your life right now. Finally, God's sovereignty gives us a sense of courage and confidence what we need to face every single challenge in our life. Paul says, I can do all things through him, through Christ who strengthens me. It says, I can do all things through Christ, not I can do all things because I believe in myself. It doesn't say, I can do all things because I have an indomitable spirit. I'm just not gonna let this hurt me. Or it doesn't say, I can do all things because I can find it on YouTube, you know. Or I can do all things because I have money. I can do all things, you know, it says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's why we can face whatever God puts before us. Because God's sovereign. You don't put it in front of us and go, oh shoot, that was too hard for them. Oh, I'm going to take it back. Oh, I feel so sorry for them because, oh, that was too hard for them. I should have known better. God doesn't do that. He knows exactly what we can take. He knows exactly why he put that in front of us. He knows exactly why these challenges are in front of us. And he knows exactly what the purpose was. Um, I was reading this verse about... Um, uh, Jesus as the guarantor, guarantor of a better covenant. This is in uh, uh, the book of Hebrews. And it says, it was talking about Jesus being better than the earthly priests. And it says that Jesus is eternal. And it says he is able to save to the uttermost. And I was reading that and I was like, to the uttermost. That means like to the ends of the earth, like to the places, to the things that you think that can never be done, like never be done. Jesus can do it. God can do it. He can, save, uh, he can save to the uttermost. He can save anybody. I mean, you meet people and we say, man, God, I don't know how God's going to save that person. You were talking about people uh, so set against Jesus. We're talking about Hindu people and just like, wow, they, 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 it's just going to be so hard to talk about Jesus with them or if people from Islam or Chinese tradition or loved ones who just kind of so set in their way, so far away from the faith. And we say, oh, it's impossible. It's just, it's just impossible. But Hebrews 7 says, God can save to the uttermost. God can do it. What we think is impossible, God can do it. Don't give up on anyone. Don't give up on anything as you think about the things that God places before you, the things that God calls you to do. God has saved us. God has adopted us. God has promised us a good future. And he is calling us to, to destroy all of our idols, to seek him with all of our hearts in prayer, and to, to find comfort in times of struggle. 
and to find courage that we can do anything through Christ who strengthens us. Let's go ahead and let's, let's bow in prayer. Let's, let's spend some time and think about what the sovereignty of God is saying to you right now, saying to each one of us right now. What is the sovereignty of God? That the fact that God is in control or the fact that God rules, he has authority, he has the right to, to rule and to tell me what, what is best for me.